There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning. It's Wednesday, September 25th, 2019. I'm Orla Carmody on today's programme. A challenge to Facebook on intimidating posts in the Quinn case. Road victims speak out on people getting off speeding offences. The mayhem in the UK, what's being said at the Labour Party conference in Brighton and living the dream or not, how an Irish returnee's path to employment and accommodation has not exactly been plain sailing in the current economy. But first, the news last night and this morning is all about disarray in world politics, a move to impeach Donald Trump, and we'll have more on that later, and the Supreme Court ruling in the UK that the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson acted unlawfully in closing down Parliament. How many times recently have we used the words extraordinary scenes when talking about the shenanigans across the water and this morning as we've heard the UK Parliament reopens amid calls for Boris Johnson's resignation and joining us on the line is Simon Carswell Public Affairs Editor of the Irish Times Good morning Simon Good morning Orla Now I'm going to come to you in a moment Simon but first we're going to just play out a short clip of what Boris Johnson said this morning Let's have a listen to this Yes, obviously this is a verdict that uh, we will respect and uh, we respect the judicial process. I have to say I strongly disagree uh, with what the justices have found. Uh, I don't think that uh, it's right, uh, but we will go ahead and, of course, Parliament will come back. Uh, I do think there's a a good case for getting on with a a Queen's speech anyway, and we'll do that. Um, But I think the most important thing is we get on and deliver Brexit on October the 31st. And there's clearly a... The claimants in this case are determined to try to to frustrate that and to to stop that. I think it'd be very unfortunate if Parliament made that uh, objective, which the people want delivered, more more difficult. But we'll, we'll get on. So Simon Carswell, um, Boris, uh, undaunted, he's kind of doubling down. I was thinking this morning, I wonder what he was thinking himself as he flew across the Atlantic last night to face the music. What do you think? Well, I think he was trying to put a very brave face on it there. I mean, I think he's doing two things there. He's trying to say, yes, I respect the courts and he has to because 
what's uh, unusual about this decision, it's unanimous. It's all 11 judges. So what that does is that that shuts down any possible attack from the government supporters that maybe there was a couple of judges who were unsure. Uh, but this, the fact that it's unanimous really uh, strengthens uh, the anti-government side um, in, in, in making the case that he abused his office. This is a damning indictment of the abuse of the power by a prime minister and, and a holder of that office. But also, if you listen to the language he used there, he talked about the people. And I think what he's doing is laying the ground here that if he can't get a better deal uh, before October 31st or indeed before October 19th, at which stage he has to seek an extension under the law uh, to the Brexit deadline, which pushes it out to January. If he can't reach a deal by that date, he really has to end up calling an election. And so the campaign he's likely to run is, is that I tried to do Brexit. I tried to make it happen on October 31st and I was frustrated. I was frustrated by Parliament. I was frustrated by Remainers. I was frustrated by anti-Brexiteers. And now he can make a case. I was frustrated by the judiciary. So it really strengthens his case and pushes the potential for this populist message that he's likely to go to the people with. Now, as he was uh, in the UN uh, yesterday, uh, one of the news clips showed him mouthing the word election. It seems to be the way he's thinking. All right. I think he has to start thinking like that. He has no majority. Um, Everything he has done since he came to power 63 days ago has blown up in his face. He... um, he, he, he expelled effectively uh, 20 uh, MPs from his party. So he, the possibility of getting anything through Parliament he, is, is impossible now because he just doesn't have the support. So unless he can get a deal uh, from the European Union, uh, a better deal, as he's hoping, uh, than the withdrawal agreement, uh, he's really facing the prospect of an election um, and, and a delay. And I think in that scenario, I think you would allow him to delay Brexit and to push it out to the end of January. But yeah, he's really looking towards an election at this stage. Now, I doubt he's going to resign. He's not really the resigning type, is he? I don't think so. And, you know, all the opposition parties, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, Lib Dems leader Joe Swinson, they've called for his resignation, uh, but he's not going to do that. And Corbyn rightly pointed out the Labour Party conference in Brighton yesterday would make him the shortest serving British Prime Minister in history. And he does not want to have that title attached to him in any way. So I think he's going to cling on. But uh, it's really desperate uh, times for Boris Johnson at this stage, given that um, he's really up against it. And this Brexit strategy of his has really been, been been exposed and it seems like it's very little chance of of it of it succeeding in any way. And he's been accused of, of very poor judgment. As you've said, nothing he seems to have done so far has worked for him. And yet he, he seems to, as I said, double down. He seems to hold firm in what he's saying. Um, he There's even reports this morning that he may even attempt to suspend Parliament again. Would, would he be that daft? Well, I think he would, because I think he is in election mode now, and it's less about governing and more about um, electioneering at this stage and, and getting out to the people, um, given that his uh, efforts to, to push through Brexit and make it happen at the end of October have been stymied by Parliament now, been stymied by the judiciary. He's now very much focused on the people. And so you're going to hear more and more rhetoric over the coming days. We, we, I, I, I would imagine that when he tries to meet European leaders and tries to get more concessions from them and they stand firm, you will start hearing more about uh, the people have been frustrated in this. Uh, I've been frustrated by the European Union. I want out. I want to uh, fulfil the will, the democratic will of the British people. The majority voted for Brexit um, in 2016 and that I've been frustrated at every turn. So you're going to hear more and more election 
election type rhetoric from Boris Johnson over the coming two or three weeks in the run up to this key EU summit on the 17th and 18th of October. Now he also mentioned in the clip that he wants to go ahead with the Queen's speech. What is the significance of, of that in the scheme of things? Well, the Queen's speech is, is kind of a punctuation point in the parliamentary cycle. He, he, and this is how he presented the proroguing when he, when he advised, his government advised the Queen to, to suspend Parliament for five weeks. It was to set uh, in a schedule the Queen's speech so he could set forward his legislative agenda. But it was clear, and although the, the, it hasn't really been portrayed as an issue around Brexit, the judges in the court made it clear that really this whole, um, this whole attempt to prorogue Parliament was a ruse. Um, the court said it's not a normal prorogation. It, was, um, it prevents Parliament from carrying out its constitutional role for five of the possible eight weeks in the run-up to the planned Brexit date on October 31st, and it had the effect upon the fundamentals of our and the effect upon the fundamentals of our democracy was extreme. So they they saw through it. They said this isn't to do with your legislative agenda. This isn't to do with the fact that you want to present a, a new um, manifesto effectively to the people. This is to do with your attempt to frustrate or prevent Parliament from doing uh, carrying out its constitutional functions, and that's without reasonable justification. And on that basis, they said it's unlawful, void, and of no effect. So they saw through his attempt to try and schedule this Queen's speech in the middle of next month. And it was very adamant, as you say, when the entire uh, Supreme Court agreed, as you said, there was not one dissenting voice. And yet beforehand, he'd had advice from the British Attorney General that suspending Parliament would be lawful and wise. You wonder where that comes from, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think there's kind of a lot of humble pie being eaten by uh, Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General at the moment. But if you look at the courts themselves, the lower courts were split, England's High Court and Scotland's Appeal Court were split over whether this was in fact justiciable, which is basically means it's a legal word for is this does the court do the courts have a right to look at this? And uh, the Supreme Court, UK Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, came down very firmly on the side of yes, this is something that we should be answering, a question that we should be dealing with. And Lady Hale, the, the President of the Supreme Court, said the question arises in circumstances which have never arisen before and are unlikely to rise again. As we said, uh, extreme times we're living in indeed. But an election uh, prior to uh, Brexit would be extremely difficult to win, obviously. Um, but at the same time, if it was uh, post um, a, a victim or a martyrdom remaining because, as you say, everybody was against him and he had no choice and he tried everything if he goes that role. Um, and, and then post uh, a Brexit, there's a post Brexit election that in fact could work in his favour. There could be some sort of upswing for him then. Do you think he could kind of reestablish himself? I think he could. I think it's very interesting if you look at the polls. The Tories and the Brexit party combined have uh, considerably more. They certainly have a plurality. They may not have a majority, but they'll have, they have the most votes. And what you have in that scenario is, and particularly if they run a campaign, I think they could appeal to Remainers who are frustrated by the whole process. I think there are Remainers out there who might now be leavers because of the sense that uh, the democratic process has been upended. They're very unhappy with the way Parliament has handled this. There may be a substantial protest vote, which will go, which if if um, Boris Johnson and his campaign team push all those populist buttons, then I think it's quite possible that they could appeal to that kind of angry vote, that frustrated vote that uh, people have. It's been th- more than three and a, it's been three and a half years almost since Brexit happened, since the vote occurred, and he could appeal to them and say, "Well, um, I'm trying to." fulfill the will, the majority will of the people. You may not agree with uh, the fact that we're leaving the European Union, but you 
couldn't possibly agree with the fact that uh, your democratic wishes have been blocked for a period of three years now. So and I think it's a very powerful message you could go to the people with. Absolutely. And finally then, um, Simon Carswell, what do you think will happen this morning when Parliament reopens at half 11? What's, what's the first thing we'll see? Well, I think what's uh, definite to happen is you're going to see some very dramatic scenes you're going to see some very angry parliamentarians and you're probably going to see a, if it's possible given what we've seen in the House of Commons over the past number of years uh, a far angrier uh, parliament um, angry parliamentarians and I think you're not just going to see Boris Johnson in election mode you're going to see uh, the leader of the opposition Jeremy Corbyn Joe Swinson and various parties in election mode I think it's going to be a highly dramatic day at Westminster today We, we look forward to the sports Simon Carswell of the Irish Times, thanks for joining us this morning. So, what has been described this morning as a monumental own goal by Boris Johnson, where does that leave the opposition? Their annual conference yesterday in Brighton was poss- possibly the end of it there, dominated by the news. And joining us now with the latest is Labour Senator Jed Nash, who attended the conference as an observer. And you obviously heard what we're doing here this morning as well. Good morning, Jed. Thanks for joining us. Morning, Ora. Now, uh, we keep saying extraordinary times and it just keeps getting more extraordinary. What was the news like um, yesterday at the conference when the news came through? Well, we really felt we were witnessing history. Um, I was at a meeting, um, a breakfast meeting, and we all went to the nearest TV at 10.30am. Myself and my colleague Brendan Howland, uh, Claire Hanna, MLA from the SDLP in Belfast, will be contesting the election. Uh, um, for uh, the, the SDLP in South Belfast shortly and Steve Pound who's a, a shadow Northern Irish Minister and Northern Ireland Minister and others just to see what was going to happen and we really felt we were w- witnessing history it was an absolutely extraordinary day uh, extraordinary ruling and uh, we really have had a, a ringside seat um, over the last few days we have seen history uh, being made an extraordinary ruling um, yesterday I think people would have noticed from Jeremy Corbyn's speech that he has something of a pep in his step now and feels uh, emboldened. Uh, delegates, I've been speaking to yesterday and indeed members of the shadow cabinet view this as an abuse of power. Uh, it's a, you know, he's contemptuous of parliament. Um, the significant thing I think for everybody is that uh, this particular uh, judgment, this particular ruling was so decisive and the fact that it was unanimous I think insulates um, the system now. The decision and the ruling of the judges yesterday couldn't be any clearer. MPs are going back to work today um, Parliament was not, in fact, prorogued. It shouldn't have been suspended, and is not suspended. They're back at work today, uh, and very enthusiastically, I think, looking forward to the next general election. Which, uh, in the view of Keir Starmer, uh, who we met with yesterday, the um, shadow spokesperson on Brexit for the Labour Party, his view is that the only way to move this on, and the inevitability almost of this, is that. Uh, there's likely to be a general election uh, on or before. We'll come to that in a moment, Jed Nash, but as you said, the the ruling couldn't have been clearer. Let's have a quick listen to the Speaker of the House, John Burko. Unlawful because it prevented or frustrated Parliament in the discharge of its core duties. And it did so at a crucial time for our country. So, as you heard there, John Burko, I mean, it couldn't be more clear, could it? It couldn't, no, it couldn't. Um, uh, certainly not. Um, there was a really sense of kind of triumphalism yesterday. Um, the victory, I think, was for people who believe in parliamentary democracy. Um, here we have a Prime Minister who behaved unlawfully, um, who uh, advised uh, the Queen unlawfully. And this is an individual, remember, and a representative of the party that um, is the Conservative Party, um, is supposed to uh, uphold and protect the institution 
constitutions and the constitutional conventions of the United Kingdom. And uh, it seems that Boris Johnson and those around him have um, essentially torched all of those conventions, all of that history, and all of those conventions to get what it is they want. Uh, so this is a real slap in the face for Boris Johnson. Now we heard um, Simon Carswell there say that the, the the next move by the Conservative Party, by Boris Johnson, might might be really to go for a sort of a hearts and minds appealing to the people that they did everything they can. And this would seemingly be the policy in uh, the Labour Party as well. The Shadow Brexit Secretary Keir Starmer said yesterday that I have a simple message today. If you want a referendum vote Labour, if you want a final say on Brexit vote Labour, if you want to fight for Remain vote Labour and Labour will let the people decide. So a very similar catch-all sort of a way of moving forward, do you believe? Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we have some concerns in the Irish Labour Party and we've articulated those concerns to um, Keir Starmer and to others. Um, now Keir Starmer himself is um, very convincingly um, uh, 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 of a Remain stance and has said very clearly that he will be campaigning uh, to um, do two things. One is to ensure that uh, there is a referendum um, and the we've been working very hard over the last three years to persuade our colleagues across the water uh, to commit to having a referendum. Um, that wasn't the position of the Labour Party, in fact, the last year. It's very clear now, uh, it, even in this very muddled and confused situation. And there was some confusion on Monday. There were two motions that were uh, taken to the floor uh, of conference here in Brighton. Uh, the, the particular um, motion that got through uh, was one from uh, essentially the party leader and the national executive, which is a slightly confusing position, uh, which uh, essentially means that the party leader himself, and we don't believe it's necessarily sustainable, this position, uh, and it's a difficult position to sustain in the context of a general election and campaigning a general election, is that, look, Jeremy Corbyn's got to say, I'm neutral on leave and remain. Um, I want to be elected to number 10 Downing Street. I want to be the prime minister. But he will pledge that within six months of being uh, Prime Minister, six months of entering Number 10 Downing Street, that he will commit uh, to uh, doing two things. One is renegotiating a deal and putting a, a renegotiated deal uh, on Brexit to the British people with two options. Either you accept that deal uh, or you decide to remain. Now, Keir Starmer and other very senior uh, representatives on the uh, front bench are of the view that uh, when uh, that referendum takes place, that he and many, many other senior representatives would be uh, very much campaigning uh, for Remain. It so seems to me, obviously, clearly, had over the last few days, that very senior people in the party are absolutely very convincingly Remain. Uh, yes, so, so clearly, um, Mr. Corbyn is is very clearly on on election footing. But and the vote you mentioned yesterday it was that uh, the party will not commit to campaigning for Remain in any uh, future EU referendum vote. So that's kind of a setback to the anti-Brexit campaigners within the party. But it's well, probably well, good well, news well, for us. Well, 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 absolutely. I mean, we, we've worked extremely hard to persuade our colleagues across the water that they need to uh, have a second referendum because that was not the position um, up until now. And uh, Keir Starmer, you, you've articulated what he said there yesterday and what he's been saying this morning in various media. Uh, he is Remain. Uh, he will be campaigning for Remain. And the Labour Party actually are the only party that is committing after the next general election to have a referendum to make sure that there is a people's vote uh, on this uh, it's been a long, hard campaign to get to this point, uh, but it's important, I think, to express that, that the British Labour Party are now uh, mandated by their members. Remember, the British Labour Party is the biggest political party uh, in, in the European continent. Uh, they're now committed to having a referendum to ask the people that question again. Improve on the, I guess, Jeremy Cormer's message to those who are voting leave uh, is that we want to renegotiate 
renegotiate a better deal. And if it's a case that we get that better deal, we're going to put that to the people. But importantly, Orla, the point he is expressing is uh, that there will be a remain option on the ballot paper. And well, that's, that's obviously um, a good news uh, for us and delighted you were able to join us uh, this morning, Senator Jed Nash from the Labour Party Conference, the British Labour Party P- Conference in Britain uh, and with all of that insight and we thank you for that. Coming up next on the programme, staying with international politics for the time being and we'll have a look at the proposed impeachment of Donald Trump. Orla Carmody on LMFM. As we heard in the US, the Democrats last night announced they will begin impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump, only the fourth president in history to face this. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, made the announcement and we're joined now by Larry Donnelly, NUI Galway lecturer and political columnist with the journal.ie. Good morning, Larry. Good morning, Ola. Now, Nancy Pelosi said she thought long and hard about this one. It's not something you do lightly, is it? No, it's not. And I mean, it needs to be said that Nancy Pelosi had held off uh, some of the, I think, hotter left wing members of her Democratic Party in Congress uh, who've long wanted impeachment inquiries against this president. Uh, I think the the revelations this week uh, about the president's uh, you know, conduct with the Ukrainian president effectively uh, withholding U.S. money uh, from uh, the Ukraine in with the idea that uh, in, in trying to force the Ukraine president uh, to start an investigation of former Joe Vice President Joe Biden uh, and his son and their activities in the Ukraine. Uh, I think that that uh, and that that came to light as a result of a whistleblower. Uh, I think that revelation this week forced her hand. Uh, and even though she, I suppose she said she was willing to do this, uh, I think she knows the political peril that can ensue from it. Now, the transcript of the phone call uh, between uh, Donald Trump and the Ukraine president is to be released later today. Have we any idea what might be in that? We don't. I mean, the, the president has been very, seems very eager to get it out there. Uh, and if he's eager to get it out there, one can only assume that there's no smoking gun in the call. Uh, Democrats, on the other hand, are saying that we can't trust him uh, to release everything that's there. And also, they want the entire whistleblower's complaint uh, to be made public. And indeed, the whistleblower has indicated a willingness uh, to testify in front of Congress. So all of that needs to play out till we see uh, exactly how damaged this latest revelation is uh, and again if they if if the phone call as I expect uh, doesn't have a huge amount in it the president will maintain this is a big victory and he will tell his supporters this is another witch hunt uh, we can't trust the Democrats they can't beat me at the ballot box so they're going to try to impeach me there is an audience for that message and that's why I think up till now Pelosi had been so cautious now obviously uh, Trump likes to position himself as a victim and exactly as you've described there they're all out to get him but could this impeachment go against the Democrats if he does, as you say, rally up that kind of support? Well, at the end of the day, you know, unless there's something totally unforeseen and unforeseeable out there, this is going to go against the Democrats in the sense that, yes, they probably will get a majority for at least one count of impeachment in the House. But the way the process works is impeachment is only one step. Uh, that effectively is the same as an indictment in the old common law system. So what would have to happen then is that it goes to the United States Senate, where he would be tried effectively by the United States Senate with lawyers involved on both sides being presented over by the Supreme Court, uh, by the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, two-thirds of the U.S. Senate would have to vote uh, to remove the president from office. That's not going to happen. So the Democrats are going to lose this one way or another. The question becomes, uh, you know, will they 
get credit for doing what they would perceive as the right thing to do, politics be damned. Will it fire up their base? Will it fire up their supporters? And will it again uh, bring to light for the American people uh, the many transgressions and moral failings of the president? Now, obviously, the Democrats are on side with this, but as you say, it has to get through the uh, the House in the first instance in order to get to the Senate, where you say there's a two-thirds majority needed and it won't get that far. Will it get past the House, do you think? I think it probably will. I, th- I would have said no to that question up until this week. Uh, and I think that's why Nancy Pelosi was able to successfully hold off demands for an impeachment inquiry. But this week, in light of what happened in terms of the Ukraine, uh, a lot of moderate Democrats, especially uh, ones who were just elected, who took seats away from Republicans in the last election, a lot of them seem to have shifted because of what's come to light. So that would be uh, people in swing districts as such. Absolutely, yeah, and I think their their movement uh, made Pelosi's efforts to to stem the tide. Uh, they, they were no longer tenable. I think that's why uh, she gave in. But make no mistake, I mean, there's a lot of been a lot of clamor in the media and elsewhere for this to begin. Uh, the Democrats do so, uh, I think, in full knowledge, or they should do so, uh, in full knowledge that this could go could blow back. I mean, the reality is when Republicans did this to Bill Clinton in 1998, uh, they suffered huge losses in the 1998 midterm. Election. Elections. So uh, this this strategy ha- carries with it huge risks. Yeah, high risk, a high wire sort of sort of a, a, a game plan as such. But as you say, it's the impact on the 2020 campaign. And if this now dominates the headlines in, in the next weeks and months, what will that impact be on the 2020 campaign? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting question. I, as I said, it is going to keep the president's moral transgressions in in the in the in the headlines and on people's minds throughout. And it may give that vital cohort, that small enough cohort who don't have hugely strong feelings about the president one way or another, it may put another doubt in their minds uh, as they go to the ballot box next November. On the other hand, however, uh, the president has released on Twitter, where else, uh, a video last night uh, effectively showing a lot of Democratic faces who wouldn't be very popular in in the states that are going to determine this thing, saying that for so long they've been out to get him, that impeachment has always been on the table, that their sole focus was to deny him a second term. He can make the case to the American people that as long as the economy is going good, which it is, he's going to keep doing his job. Democrats remain focused on impeachment. Uh, They're not focused on doing the people's business. There is an audience for that message. There's no question about it. And I think certainly uh, if the whistleblower complaint doesn't live up to the hype and if the phone call doesn't have a smoking gun, uh, then Democrats uh, will already be on the back foot in pursuing this inquiry. Now, you mentioned um, your view of the president's uh, low moral compass, which I think is shared by many on this side of of the water. But uh, his his tweet yesterday about a 15-year-old girl uh, sarcastic uh, Greta Th- Thunberg uh, that's that's really a new low isn't it it is. I mean, the, the you know, look, the, the, it's you know, it shouldn't be a secret to people now. I don't think it is. The, the president is a disgrace. He, does, he lacks a temperament to be president of the United States. Uh, the fact that he would mock uh, a 16-year-old girl is revolting in the extreme, but it's par for the course. Uh, all of that having been said, we can't impeach him for that. We can't, we can't remove him from office because we don't like him, and an awful lot of us don't like him. But the remedy typically in a democratic system to, def- to, to, to get somebody out of office we don't like is to beat him or her at the ballot box. And this is the other thing that's implicit in President Trump's response is they can't beat me at the ballot box, so they're going to go uh, with the with the assistance of their allies and the media. 
media, they're going to try to impeach me. Uh, and some Americans, if they look and see uh, the phone call, if they look and see the, 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 the whistleblower, and they don't see a whole lot of there there, as we say in the U.S., uh, then that could react and reverberate very, very badly uh, against the Democratic Party. So, um, look, the Democrats are here. They've crossed the Rubicon. Impeachment is on the table, uh, but it carries with it risks. Finally, then, Larry Donnelly, what is the timeline for the impeachment? Uh, when will we see all of this uh, happening? Well, it's going to be over the, the coming weeks and months. Uh, there are six committees who've been tasked with the idea of turning. They, they already, they've already been investigating the president, but now they're doing so under the explicit guise of, of an impeachment inquiry. Those six committees are going to get together uh, and you know look at all the evidence, look at all that's out there, consider what comes to light over the next week or so, uh, and they're going to make a determination as to what the sellable articles of impeachment might be. Uh, those will then go to the Judiciary Committee, uh, and then ultimately, depending on how many articles there are, they will be voted on by the entire House of Representatives. And if just one gets a majority uh, in the House of Representatives, uh, then the president will be impeached uh, and the matter will go to the United States Senate. And to have this play out against the backdrop uh, of a re-election campaign really is unprecedented in all sorts of ways for the United States and another chapter uh, in a truly unprecedented presidency. Larry Donnelly, thank you so much for joining us today with that still to come on the programme. A film director and stay-at-home dad from Drogheda on the struggles he's having in moving back to Ireland. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Media giant Facebook may be called in before an Oireachtas Communications Committee hearing to answer questions about alleged delays in removing posts regarding the Quinn Holdings directors, which are said to be intimidating. Fianna Fáil TD Timmy Dooley and spokesperson on Communications Environment and the National Resources believes that the people behind the screen are doing as much damage as people behind a gun. And he joins us now. Good morning, Deputy Dooley. Morning, Orla. Now, are your concerns regarding the media giant Facebook more around the actual content that these uh, posts have contained or the delays in removing them? Yeah, for quite some time now, I've been really concerned about uh, the approach taken by Facebook and other digital platforms to the removal of harmful content, whether it's videos or whether it's, you know, Facebook posts, etc., um, they've come before our committee on a number of occasions and indicated that they have internal procedures which they follow. And if somebody identifies comments or posts that are harmful or disturbing, um, they remove them without delay. We now have a situation where executives of Quinn Industrial Holdings are informing the public um, that they were disturbed by material of a very serious intimidatory nature that has been posted over the last couple of years that they have sought uh, the assistance of Facebook to remove this content. Um, Facebook have refused. Uh, My understanding is that they've even had to seek certain court orders um, against Facebook to try to address this situation. Um, So uh, for some time now, I have believed that Facebook are not living up to their responsibilities. And the difficulty is Facebook... uh, are not a, a publisher as defined in a, say, in relation to a broadcaster like yourself or in relation to a media title like the Irish Independent or uh, a local paper or the Irish Times or whatever. So they've been operating on the basis that they're just a platform that allowed people to say whatever it is they wish. And if somebody breaches the, the thin line, as it were, between acceptable and unacceptable behaviour, they'll remove the content when they're asked to do so. A clear example here now where they haven't followed through on that. And what I want to understand from them is 
why that hasn't happened. Now, obviously, you're saying there that Facebook are claiming and and other platforms that they're not a publisher. Is that a bit of a cop out, do you believe, by them? But equally, is the onus on government to actually regulate? Well, the answer to to, to your to, to your two part question is yes and yes. Um, they are publishers. Um, they do exercise editorial control in relation to some content. They decide um, who gets to see what, um, and they do curate to some extent um, some of the information because they they decide, as I said, based on your profile what you get to see, uh, and they also have the capacity to remove. Um, I certainly think that the government need to act much quicker. Uh, the Law Reform Commission back at the end of 2016 suggested that there should have been a digital safety commissioner appointed to police these really large organisations um, because they can't be uh, it can't be accepted now that they will follow through on self-regulation. Quite frankly, they haven't. Um, they have been looking for self-regulation for a long time. And to be honest with you, the Taoiseach has been very slow to, to push uh, for the, the creation of this uh, Office of Digital Safety Commission. He seems to be somewhat uh, enthralled by uh, the power and influence of Mark Zuckerberg and others and seems to pay more attention to them uh, than to the people who are really negatively impacted by the failure of Facebook and others to live up to a standard that I think we, think we, we, we would want uh, to know is acceptable. The kind of content that has been maintained on sites here is of a very serious nature. Uh, it compares uh, the executives of Quinn to, um, you know, paramilitaries. Um, it, it, it's intimidatory in terms of the way it suggests that they should be treated and dealt with. Um, there's veiled threats uh, around their safety. Um, some of the threats are less veiled. Some of the threats would seem to suggest that uh, they will be eliminated. Uh, they will be taken out. This like, is all hugely concerning and even more so, um, Timmy Dooley, what you said earlier, that this is going on for a couple of years and that the Quinn Group have been in regular contact with these platforms and even have had court orders. So yeah. this is going on and going on and, and it's not being resolved. And, and look where it led for that unfortunate man, Kevin Lunny. Yeah, I mean, and you know, intimidation can come in, in many ways. We talk about bullying of children. We see, we see young people uh, take their own lives because they're bullied online. Um, this kind of campaign of intimidation against these really strong and resilient men and women in this region uh, really is uh, an appalling uh, level of behaviour because at the end of the day, um, it's going to be very difficult uh, for people who would want to work in these companies to take executive roles because of this level of intimidation. And clearly what's, what's behind all of this is an effort and an exercise to force these people out and ensure that no one replaces them. Now, that has a profound impact on the five or six people that are targeted, but it has an enormous impact on the region, uh, on the economic life of the region, the economic well-being of the region. It has an enormous impact on the families of the 800 people that are employed in companies there. So there's, there's a campaign of intimidation which clearly is aimed at grinding down these companies for whatever reason. And I, I have no, no knowledge of what the background to it is or, or, or who's behind it. But there's clearly, it's clearly... It's a serious problem. It's well financed. There's somebody with a, an agenda here or some group of people with an agenda. Um, and it is up to the law enforcement on both sides of the border to ensure that every effort is made um, to hunt down the people who are behind this and bring them to justice and ensure that the subtlety of the online bullying 
is addressed without delay. And the people that can do that are the people in Facebook. Well, finally then, uh, Deputy Timothy Dooley, uh, bringing them in uh, in front of a communications committee, how soon do you think that might happen? And will they look at the delays, as you said, in taking these down and indeed the decisions around taking them down? What are their internal procedures around that? Yeah, well, I I would hope because of the seriousness of this uh, issue that this can happen within the next couple of weeks, um, I've spoken to at least one of the executives uh, in Quinn International Holdings, or Quinn Industrial Holdings, uh, and my expectation is that they will be able to provide very considerable material to assist us in our work. And I would hope that uh, one or a number of the executives of, 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 of QIH uh, will also come before the committee uh, and be in a position to challenge uh, the, um, you know, the information and evidence provided by Facebook. Because what we really need to out Facebook here um, and make sure that uh, make sure that they are held to account. They, they, yes, they're digital platforms. Um, they currently under Irish law are not defined as publishers, but they do have a responsibility and a duty of care to people uh, like the five or six executives. Well, here. we look forward and to, to hearing more on that um, and indeed to covering the Aroxas Communications uh, Committee hearing when that occurs. Deputy Timmy Dooley, thank you for joining us on LMFM this morning and coming up after the headlines, your texts and comments. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now it's time for our look at your texts and comments with Marie Kearns. What have we got this morning, Marie? Orla, we've plenty <laughs> where to start. Well, first of all, um, some on Boris Johnson and what's going on in the UK Parliament. Uh, Grania from Drada feels that Boris Johnson has to be the most arrogant man around. He acted unlawfully, that's what's been said in the court, yet he's behaving like he has done nothing wrong. It beggars belief, says Grania. <laughs> uh, another listener, we're living in scary times when you look at both Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. They appear to be a law unto themselves. They don't seem to care what anybody else says or thinks about them. They may be friends at the moment, Orla, but trust me, it won't be long before they fall out. Hard to comprehend that they have such power. Uh, Absolutely correct and amazing. Uh, We were saying this morning, how many different ways can we say, oh my God, this is extraordinary. Oh my, we've never seen this before. This is unprecedented. And then we say it again. It is extraordinary time. It is. uh, Senator Gerald Nash is right. Uh, This is Seamus from Dundalk who phoned in. He says it really is extraordinary times that we are witnessing. But what will it mean for Brexit and for Ireland? Hopefully there will be a general election in the UK and then a referendum and that the British people will have realised the awful consequences that leaving the EU would bring and they will vote to remain, says Seamus. That's what he's pinning his hopes on. And interestingly, we heard from both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party in Britain now saying it's up to the people. So it's looking more like that kind of a a go back to the people scenario might actually happen. Uh, Tom also got in touch on the same topic and Tom says that while Johnson might be under some pressure at the moment, what really will they do in the UK Parliament? They, will they get rid of him? I don't think so. Who will step into the position? They've gone through enough prime, minister, prime ministers already over Brexit. Uh, another listener, Jim, I think the likes of Johnson and Trump think that they are untouchable. <laughs> 
Absolutely. So that's just a flavour of some of them that have come in on that topic, um, Orla. And we might take some more later on if we get a chance. And just a reminder that our WhatsApp and text number is 86 658 And you can always phone us on 1850-715-958. And now, Marie Kearns, you have for us the newspaper roundup. That's right, of the local papers. What's making the news today, Orla? Well, we go to the Drogheda Independent first. It's leading with a good news story this week under the headline, Success as Drogheda to get town manager. And that's because the ratepayers of the town have voted overwhelmingly in favour of introducing a bid. That's a business incentive district scheme for the town, paving the way for the appointment of a town manager as part of the process. Niall Kieran's of the Love Drogheda Bid team commended the many civic-minded businesses across all sectors who have endorsed the scheme. And for those who don't know, the paper explains that bid is operated through a company with an elected board comprising of ratepayers along with two co-opted board members, a county councillor and an executive from Loud County Council. And the additional charge, Orla or Levy, is ring-fenced and used to finance shared common projects. So that's certainly a good news story for the town. I would say great news and particularly because the ratepayers are the businesses and they would like a voice on that and they're there to get it now, which could have a good impact on the town. Also on the front page is a sad farewell to one of Drogheda's adopted daughters, Carmel Freeman, who sadly passed away last week after dedicating her life to the care of others. Carmel was, of course, one of the founding members of the Drogheda Hospice Home Care Movement and one of the main driving forces behind it for the past quarter of a century, helping so many families in the area and our sympathies today go out to her family. Absolutely. To Dundalk then and the Dundalk Democrat, a fresh appeal to help trace missing Mark Smith is the lead story of the paper as Gardaí renewed their plea for public information in a desperate bid to help locate the 34-year-old who was last seen in the RD area over 17 months ago. Mark, who also went by the surname Riley, is known to have frequented the Dundalk and Drogheda areas and was well known by the homeless communities and homeless charities across Louth. Inside then, the paper has a lovely two-page big picture special commemorating 150 years of CBS education in Dundalk. So that's worth having a look at. Absolutely. And obviously, if the public or anybody knows of any information at all that might help the search for Mark Smith or Riley, obviously, they could uh, go to the Gardaí with that. That's right. Moving to the Argus, the Argus is also covering the Mark Smith case on its front page, but also adds another dimension to this story with Olivia Ryan reporting that Louth has one of the highest number of missing people in the country, according to new figures revealed at the Oireachtas Committee debate last week. Dundalk TD Peter Fitzpatrick highlighted that more than 400 people from Loud are reported missing every year. And I wonder is there an impact there of historical missing people with the troubles? A lot of that would have been obviously centred around North Loud and the border. Then to Navan to the Royal County and the Mead Chronicles front page is reporting that the Mead GAA County Board has been asked that an investigation into a complaint made by referee Patrick Needless against his former chairman Peter O'Halloran be probed by a, in quote, higher GAA authority. O'Halloran, of course, dramatically stepped down as Mead GAA chairman on Friday evening, citing an error of judgment more than two years after sending that controversial WhatsApp message to Neilis, which appears to have come back to haunt him. So I'm sure we'll be hearing more on that story. In the meantime, another story that caught my eye in the Chronicle this week concerns Seamus Cassidy. For those of you who don't know, Seamus is a native of Kells and he's been named on the shortlist for the inaugural Teachers Inspire Ireland initiative.
Mr. Cassidy taught at the CBS in Galway and was nominated by Liam Morgan, who coincidentally now lives in Ashburn. So there you go. It's come full circle. He's back living in the, in the Royal County where Mr. Cassidy is originally from. And finally, then the Dundalk leader is covering stories that we've also given plenty of publicity to in the past week. The climate change protest in Dundalk makes for the front page, which reports about the hundreds of students who gathered in front of the courthouse in the town to get the message across last Friday. And then the paper's also giving lots of coverage to the public rally in the town on Saturday to highlight the situation at Caloche de Lou as parents and students fear for its future. All right, Marie Kearns, thank you very much for that roundup of uh, the local papers. And still to come on the programme, too many people have been taken out of the income tax net. For the comedy on LMFM. Now, a Drogheda film producer who had a high-level career in Silicon Valley returned to the northeast with his American wife and three children a year ago, hoping for a better quality of life for his young family. He believed things were on the up here in Ireland and that they would settle into life here very well. Well, they have done, and school and family life is great, and the flower was great fun. But this week, Frank Kelly is posting angrily about the cost of rents and the low pay on offer in Drogheda, and he joins us now. Frank, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks, Horne. Great to be here. So you're from Drogheda originally and you took off for the Bright Lights some yeah. years back. Tell me about that. Well, we left uh, about six years ago. Um, we were struggling. It was My wife is American, so she moved here originally just as the recession hit. And we were I was on the dole. She was working part-time and we just weren't making ends meet. So we decided to make the move. And uh, about six years ago, we headed off, landed in Indiana. Uh, spent a year there. I was working nights. She was working days. We saw each other for an hour in between. Not said, ideal. No. So we said, let's let's try something else. So we headed west, um, uh, packed up the kids in the minivan and the dog, you know. Um, no, we were basically homeless and on the road. But luckily on the road, I started interviewing for a job at Apple. Um, and by the time we hit, we actually hit Seattle, I'd gotten the job. So we turned the car left and headed for California. And a week later, I was working at Apple. What an adventure. Oh, completely. Like that, That's that's an hour in itself, that story. Um, but it was like the dream job. Um, and it was actually a friend of mine from Drogheda, Graham McBride, who I'd grown up two doors down from in Newfield, was working there and put my resume in. And through him, I got the job. Um, so we ended up, like we were neighbors as kids, we ended up sitting at a desk next to each other at Apple in California going, how did we get here? <laughs> you know? And life was good for a while, but then you began to be, get a bit homesick? Yeah, um, we kind of joined the rat race. You know, it was Silicon Valley and it's it's uh, in Apple especially, I was in marketing, it was production. So uh, three times a year, they do big launches and for the two months leading up, you're just locked in. You're, it's 12 to 18 hour days, working weekends. And um, so they pay you well, but they demand a lot as well. Absolutely, yeah. There's, there's a reason they're they they are what they are, you know. Um, so they, you know, they burn people out quite quickly, and I was certainly one of the people who got burnt out. Um, very stressed, uh, affected my mental health. I wasn't a happy person, um, and I missed the kids. I missed being with my family. Um, I began to miss Ireland a lot more. I missed the community here, the sense of community spirit, uh, especially here in Drogheda. Um, my own family. Um, I, I saw the kids weren't happy either. They weren't happy in school. Um, and then we had a, our, our youngest daughter came along, who's two now. And I kind of realized she's not going to know my life here or what it's like to grow up in Ireland. She's going to be American. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but 
I kind of started to get pangs to come back, you know. So you packed up and came on back a year ago here and yeah. you've been a stay-at-home dad since, but your wife found work quite quickly. Yeah, that was kind of the plan. It was like one of us, we both started looking for work and whoever found the job, the other would stay at home with the kids. So Marianne found a job at UCD uh, and, you know, it was it was it looked like on paper enough to keep us afloat and we still had some money saved up from the Apple days and... Um, some tax came back. So we had enough there to kind of buffer, to kind of supplement our income. And it gave you time to spend quality time with the kids over the last year, which yeah. is fantastic. And we got exactly what we wanted. Like we, we arrived home, remember the weather last year was amazing. It was actually warmer here than it was in California. I had the kids all geared up for Irish weather and they were like, Dad, it's exactly the same as, what, as it was in California. Um, and then the fly happened and it was just great to be home. It was like, it was a holiday for months and we found a nice place to live. Um, the rent wasn't too bad. Marianne was happy in our job and I was happy having that time with the kids. So now the time has come to go job hunting and your eyes are being seriously opened. Oh, yeah. Without naming any companies, obviously, but you're really concerned about low pay in Drogheda. Yeah, I am. It just doesn't line up to what the rent is. Um, and I've kind of been looking at, we thought we might save a little bit of money on the rent. Maybe we could get some, a couple of hundred euros less. Everything is way more than going up and up all the time. It's, it's insane. I can't. It's Silicon Valley prices, and it's kind of lining up with what I saw in Silicon Valley. I saw a house recently that was a three-bedroom bungalow. It was two thousand two hundred in Drogheda. Doesn't make sense to me. No. And um, and then the wages. I'm looking for something locally so I can be nine to five local, so I can still drop the kids at school, pick them up. Because what I wanted to avoid, the reason we came home was. That 12-hour shift where you get to see the kids maybe an hour in the evening or not at all for five days. And with your wife commuting to UCD, that's a long commute sitting on the M50. So you both can't do that. Yeah. So you're looking local. Yeah. And what kind of salaries are you seeing? Between twenty and 30000 For Usually, somebody with your experience? Yeah. And um, I'm not necessarily looking for you know film work or producing work or, or at Apple I did marketing. But just something that can you know give us that breathing space, which we don't have at the moment. Um and I suppose a lot of families are in that situation as well, where it's just your know, paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, it's that thing of being one payment away from being homeless, you know. Um, and 25000 a year sounds like a, a, a sort of a fairly young person's salary, an inexperienced person. It doesn't sound like somebody who has been around the houses a few times, yeah. to put it nicely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could probably go for the bigger wages, uh, look, you know, to Dublin, join the commute. Um you know, head for Facebook or Google or, you know, put my Apple experience to use. But again, it's I'm trying to avoid, you know, not seeing the kids and having other people raise my children for me, you know, which I, I guess a lot of people are in that boat, you know. And the 25 or the 20,000 euro salaries, I mean, again, as I said, without naming companies, but are they significant established companies that could technically pay more? Yeah, yeah, they've been around, like uh, certain companies that have been in the town a while, um, uh, it's a lot of kind of warehouse positions. Um, uh, yeah, just stuff that I kind of went for that had been around a long time, you know. Yes. Um, but um, but you were surprised at how low the wages they were offering. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was kind of wages that I saw. I mean, 20,000 is just above the basic minimum wage. Yeah, yeah. And then you're, you know, you're pulling in, I guess, after tax, maybe 400 a week. And then your rent, the average rent is seems to be about 1,600 in town. 
So I'm not sure how that lines up. You know. And the additional um, even childcare support you might need if you well, needed yeah, somebody to pick up the we'd kids. We'd have to have the youngest in a crash. We'd have to have somebody arranged to pick up the kids from school at two to five or six or whatever it is. Um, but again, it, that's what we did in in California. We had we had nannies. You know, we had after school care, and we were because I was on a a six-figure salary and Marianne was in Stanford and she was earning a decent wage. We could afford to do that. Um, But it doesn't line up here. You know, it's... Over there, we had the jobs that fit that lifestyle. Uh, But here, we can't seem to find it without tacking on a huge commute. And yet, you're seeing comparable rents in Drogheda than you saw in, in Silicon Valley. Yeah, when you're talking about, you know, earning... Twenty to thirty thousand, and then the rent is sixteen hundred up to two thousand. You know, it doesn't really line up. Um, and I, I used to, when I was in Silicon Valley, I knew I was in a comfortable position. But then I would often question how the people who are working in supermarkets um, make it work. And it's because they have a two and a half hour commute to get to that job, or they work another job or two other jobs, um, and they have that kind of lifestyle where they're on minimum wage. But they're like treading water the entire time. So, so what options do you have now at this point? Um, I'm looking at, I'm leaving no stone unturned. I'm, I'm still, I'm going to start applying for jobs, whatever I can get, just to kind of bring a bit more income in. Um, Are I'll, you prepared to take one of those low paid jobs? Yeah, I mean, we have to, because um, we are kind of just about kind of keeping afloat. If any emergencies crop up, we're kind of in deep water you know we're not able to save we would like to buy a house eventually but that's just pie in the sky at this stage um but we're looking at uh increased tax going into the winter the carbon tax we're looking at a, a hard budget probably because of brexit is, is this very worrying for you yeah absolutely like we came home uh thinking ireland was on the up but it's it's the um, it's the same thing that you know. It, it's always been. There's, there's always a line of people waiting to take the money off you that you have in your hand. You know, so we'll just keep going the way we are. Um, we're certainly looking at other options like FIS um, supplementary income. Um, I know the the social welfare has brought in a, a new scheme for directors um, of filmmakers, so we can kind of pursue our art for a year uninterrupted. I really don't kind of want to go down that road because that's where we were six years ago. Filmmaking is very precarious, which is clearly why you took the job in marketing in, in the US. Yeah, it is. Uh, I've never really made money from filmmaking. It's, it's a very expensive hobby. Yeah, to bring all that <laughs> skill to marketing, you can make videos yeah. for the marketing department. You can do a yeah. lot of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In the minute I have left with you, Frank, if this is not terribly unfair, <laughs> do a pitch. Tell, tell somebody why they should employ you. Oh, geez. Wow. Well, this is my ex- well, my lifetime of experience. I'm 42 years old. I've worked multiple jobs. I've been promoted, you know, 10 times in different roles. I have experience in Apple. I'm a filmmaker. I'm outgoing. I'm, you know, very worthy of hiring and could certainly bring a lot to any business. You know, I'm always a, a very enthusiastic team player when I join a company. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story with us today and we wish you every success with that and hopefully somebody will have heard it and and (laughs) will will give you the call. Frank Kelly, thank you for joining us on LMFM this morning. Orla Carmody on LMFM. 
Now, too many people have been taken out of the income tax net, putting a huge burden on middle and high earners. And that's according to the Irish Institute of Tax. Close to one million workers do not pay in any income tax at all because their earnings fall below the threshold for paying it. And we're joined now by Anne Gunnell, the Director of Tax Policy with the Institute. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Orla. Now, you believe that this situation is unsustainable. Tell me why. I suppose the point that we're trying to make or highlight here, like we've just, I suppose in terms of the budget this year, it's very different in that, you know, we're facing a a no deal Brexit and we agree with the minister that he has to be prudent in terms of what he does. So we're not going to be seeing any kind of tax changes, but we just thought that it might be time to kind of highlight some of the, you know, aspects of the tax system that, you know, at this kind of uncertain time. And what we've seen is that over, there's been a trend over the last number of years of more and more taxpayers, income earners coming out of the tax net. And what we believe is that it's very important in terms of resilience, that we have a broad base tax and then we can aim to have lower rates in that context. And um, I suppose just to bear in mind, back when the whole USC, um, the Universal Social Charge, was introduced in 2011, so when we had our financial crisis back, you know, over 10 years ago, there was actually 45% of income earners were out of the out of the net. So there was a lot less people. So we were, you know, um, very exposed at that time. So the USC was introduced, and it brought. Um, actually there was only 12% then that were exempt in 2011 and gradually what the trend we've seen over the years since that more and more people have been brought out of the net so we're kind of moving back and now we're currently that there's 28% in terms of exempt totally out of the net but then there's that's USC because that's the first point where you actually pay tax and then there's even more when it comes to um, income tax as you said at the outset there's up to nearly 1 million in that case. Now obviously this won't be very popular what you're saying because obviously the reason that low earners are out of the uh, income tax next it's as, as a support to them it's as an encouragement to people to go back to work but do you believe that everybody should pay some small amount even if it was five euro a week just to make the point that if you're an earner you should be paying tax is that the point is it the principle exactly it's I mean absolutely people should pay according to their means and we have a very progressive tax system so we would say those that are you know earning more should contribute more absolutely and we're just saying that you know a broader base in terms of like international tax practice in terms of the best you know kind of international principles to have a robust tax system it is better to have you know people earning everyone contributing a small amount but absolutely according to their means and then the whole tax system and social welfare system should be used by the government to redistribute um, you know wealth and to you know addressing community quality which it does very well but we're just kind of I suppose highlighting some of the you know the trends and the current uh, Now as the situation currently stands if somebody is on a low wage and they're paying no tax or, or not even the universal social charge as you say when they cross that threshold because they get a very minor increase and pay at work. Is it a big shock to the system then suddenly to be paying everything? Well, I suppose in terms of USC, what happens with that is there, the entry point is €13,000, so you don't, you're completely exempt there. And you're right, when they, if you tip over that by €1, Euro, then you're suddenly paying um, a half a percent on all your earnings, you know, um, um, from, you know, from zero. So it's just, yeah, so there can be, but I suppose where the biggest um, kind of impact in terms of, I suppose, shock is more around the middle, where the entry point for income tax, where we move from the 20% to the 40 
because that's that actually relatively modest salary levels of and where exactly 35,000 a year is that what you're saying yeah exactly and compared to other countries we're very quick to do that you know and I know it is something that the government um, has committed that they you know they want to increase you know say up to about 50,000 in the next five years because average earnings at this stage you know is around the 48 49,000 for a full-time person working and so that's something we would be encouraging the government yes we understand with um with Brexit and, you know, the uh, the risks that are out there, but not to forget that kind of commitment and to concentrate around... Well, you're saying the average salary is uh, 48,000. That would be a shock uh, here in, in the local area. Just before you come on the programme, we had a, a fairly well-qualified marketeer and filmmaker who is being offered salaries uh, in Drogheda in the northeast here uh, of 20 or 25 or 30,000. And, uh, you know, it's it's very hard to get those salaries outside Dublin. Oh, I, I, I'm sure. I'm just now quoting the figure from the Central Statistics Office that they said that is when they've taken looking around, you know, the whole of Ireland. That's the kind of averages for a full-time working person is currently around 48,000. So somebody then who, as you say, were on the threshold of 35,000, if they were on 34,000 last year and their employer suddenly gives them a, an increase and they're now up at 35,000, they immediately click in and they start paying tax at 20%. Uh, sorry, no, they will be paying um, 20 on their income tax once they go above around 16,000, right? right. Yeah. And then there's a band up to the 20% applies up to around the 35,000 mark. But then, in fact, actually, when you go over that threshold, as you say, if you've got a bonus or something. Um, Suddenly you're into 40%, yeah. 40%, yeah. Which is a lot for somebody who's on 35,000 a year. It's not a lot if you're up on the stellar salaries of 80 or 90,000. But if you're on that lower salary, suddenly to be into 40,000, or 40% is quite an ask, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's why we're saying that, you know, to continue to try to target that middle entry point, you know, to encourage people, you know, to be working and that if they are going, you know, for that promotion or their, you know, that bonus or, you know, that there is something in it for them. And this is where you're where you're calling the squeezed middle. Obviously, the burden is there. And do you feel there could be a reduction in tax to the middle ground if there was some small contribution made at, at the other end of the scale? Exactly. I suppose what we're saying, if we do want to address that issue, we have to continue to have a broad base. And as I said, when the USC came, now we did come in at a very low level at 2011. It was only around for incomes over 4,000, which was very, very low. But it did bring in a lot more people paying that um, tax. We had a much broader base. So yes, I suppose what we're saying is that if you want to have address you know, other issues within the personal tax system, we have to ensure that we have a broad base and that there's more people, even if, if it's contributing a very, very small amount, but it's just to have more people within the net, then we can, we can spread, the, spread the load, spread the burden across. All right, Anne Gunnell, Director of Tax Policy with the Institute of Tax. Thank you for joining us on the programme. And obviously that will come up again in budget uh, later in the year. And later on the programme, reaction to uh, climate activist Greta Thunberg. But first, you probably heard the reports yesterday that thousands of motorists all over the country have been let off the hook for speeding offences because they were never served with the summons to appear in court. Almost 28,000 of the 61,000 speeding offences listed in the court 
reports over a 29-month period were struck out. The Irish Road Victims Association is dismayed by the news and has called for tougher penalties and we're joined now by Leo Ligio, father of Marcia, who was knocked down in a hit and run in 2005 when she was 16 years old. Good morning, Leo. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Arna. Now, you've described the figures as a slap in the face to you and all the other families bereaved in this way. What was your initial reaction to hearing it yesterday? Uh, I wasn't surprised, to be honest with you, because of all the other revelations that have come forward. But um, at the same time, I was absolutely shocked. I just can't believe at this day and age that this kind of thing is still carried going on. Like, like, like I said, for myself and for everybody else in, in, in the Road Victims Association, for all victims, like we're just members of a club that none of us wanted to be in. It's just another letdown. We campaign tirelessly to prevent loss of life for others and for other families. Stop them going through what we go through and then we hear stuff like this coming out. Now, obviously, you support the work of uh, the organisation because of what happened to you. Tell me about that day that your daughter uh, became a hit-and-run victim. Well, it was just a normal day, like like every other day. I was sitting at home. The wife and the other kids were, had gone out. When Marcia had stayed at home, she, wanted, she was going to attend a 50th birthday party. And uh, our friends tell me that that day was just a normal day. And they were having a lot of fun. Marsh, as usual, had was making them all laugh, keeping them all happy. Then at 20 past eight, I got a call from one of our friends saying Marsh had been knocked down. Of course, we rushed down to the site and Marsh was lying there unconscious on, on the stretcher. And they brought her to Tala Hospital. And for a full week, Marsh fought, fought to try and stay with us, but just wasn't able. Her injuries were too severe and um, obviously it's still something that sits with you, uh, Leo, and uh, and will never leave you. Obviously, the pain of Marcia's loss. Marcia was the eldest of your children. What kind no, of a girl was she? No, she was only 16 and she'd only turned 16, but her sister Leah was 10 months older. And uh, Marcia was, Leah was born on the 22nd of October, Marcia, 31st of August. So they were very close. They were grew up together, went to school together, did everything together. And when Marcy died, like they tried to go back to school but she couldn't. And we Marcy's life support machine was actually turned off on her sister's birthday. And that's but, something that'll stay with her. Well it's tough for tough for her every year. Marcy was there. She's like a normal teenager. She wasn't perfect but she was was very, very close to it. <laughs> She always had a huge sense of humour and a big smile on her face. And she would affect others with her smile, with her laughter. She just loved babies. She was always seeing a baby in her arms. She was uh, an, an ace babysitter, I hear. From the age of 11, she was babysitting. I think she babysitted for nearly every, every kid on the block. <laughs> uh, I, I, first, I never thought she would be able to do it, but the the missus said she would and she did <laughs> and and she was well able oh very well able yeah now I know you spend a lot of time giving talks in schools and etc uh, highlighting the need for a tougher action on road safety um, in the instance uh, of, of Marcia's accident um, the, the driver I know was speeding and there had been previous offences and all sorts and we don't need to go into that but the, the, even the sentence was quite short but what kind of action are you really calling for Leo Ligio? 
I want them to stop to call road traffic accidents and I don't want them called as uh, offences. I want them treated as crime. Drink driving, speeding, not wearing a seatbelt, using a mobile phone as, as well. These are serious, serious crimes and people are being seriously injured every single day and people killed every other day. With 150 killed and you can multiply that by five, five to eight people, the number of people suffer serious injuries due to the, the reckless, irresponsible driving and if the people just, if the people aren't going to listen, they're not going to pay attention. It's up to the authorities to make sure they do. It's up to them. And it's for, the, for the speeding, I think, personally, every person should be compelled to carry their driving licence with them. And if they're not going to carry their driving licence with them, it's no sense. And they should be treated just as seriously. There's 108 people killed this year already. That's five, five more than last year already. And the Road Victims Association, clearly you monitor these these statistics very closely in order to stay on top of it. And as you say, speed is a huge factor. Uh, substance abuse is a factor. But now you're seeing mobile phones and just distraction has been an increasing factor. Absolutely. There's so many mixed messages out there. Like, we talk and we talk to go to schools and we, we we talk to anybody that listens and we complain that the, the dangers that are out there. And then I've only only talked on myself now. You watch any movie on television now, and you even have police coming out of bars and getting into the cars and driving home, and people on their mobile phones. You won't see anybody smoking in a movie anymore. <laughs> it's it's just crazy the things that have gone. It's, it's just people seem to accept motor offences, motor crime as as oh well. It's not serious. Not going to happen. It's and it's it's fine. yeah. There is a casualness about it, but the mobile phone use apparently is 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 really you know a huge part of it at the moment. Right. And no matter how often we're told use hands free, people still will text that they'll they'll look at their phone. There are people have been done for for checking Facebook while they're driving. Exactly, you have people out there spending thousands on their cars and you can't spend twenty euros on a, on a, on, a, on a Bluetooth device. I've seen it. I've seen people driving Mercedes and BMWs with the phones up to the rears. And yeah, I've seen I've seen anything. major trucks, the big you know eighteen wheelers. I've seen those guys driving on mobile phones as well. Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, like I drive every day up and down to Bolton last well, every day to Dublin, and even last night when I was coming home by twelve o'clock at night, and the trucks they're driving up that road and the speed they're travelling, I I wouldn't even try attempt to keep up with them, and they're going around those bends. There are accidents, there are collisions waiting to happen. And it's just by the grace of God that there isn't more. Because people are just not, they're not, just not listening. They're just, like you said, just taking everything as, a, as casual. And the authorities are doing the same thing. You know what I mean? The courts are doing the same thing, letting you get these people off, taking it, making excuses for them. Yeah. And people, oh, we, we depends on our jobs, our families depend on what if I have to bring my kids to the doctor or the hospital these things you should think of before you get in behind the wheel of the car. Absolutely. And finally, Leo Ligio, how are the rest of your children doing in the meantime? Do they support your work with the uh, Victims Association? Oh, they do. They're 100% behind us. And like I said, we're we're members of a club and none of us want to be in. And every year is just keeping going and growing. And like, I'm living up here in Bodden Glass. One one of my sons lives in Dundalk, another in Enfield, and my daughter and grandchild in Dublin. And I... I'm, I don't like asking them to come up to me for dinner or anything because you know, I'm afraid something else might happen to them and then it'll be my fault because I asked them up. 
but you take consolation from the work you do to highlight these issues. Uh, I I feel like Marsha's over there on me now, and I'm just I'm doing this for her, and I'm doing this for other people out there. Not something I want to do. It shouldn't be up to us to do this. These interviews for us to raise awareness, indeed. They're not easy, and and but we're forced to do it. We're forced to do it because there's no one else out there. It's everybody's responsibility to keep everybody else safe on the roads and for the authorities to do it as well. All right, Leo Ligio of the Irish Road Victims Association, thank you so much for joining us today on LMFM. I know that was a difficult one for you and we really appreciate it. We'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. There has been some reaction to the impassioned speech made by young climate activist Greta Thunberg at the UN Climate Summit in New York yesterday, with concerns expressed about her personal health and resilience in the face of such pressure on a 16-year-old. And we're joined now by Irish examiner, columnist and former CEO of Bernardo's, Fergus Finlay. Good morning, Fergus. Good morning, Ola. How are you? Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Now, obviously, there's been a lot written about this this morning and you've written about it yourself. But I suppose I wanted to touch on the the child protection area as it's something you're familiar with and uh, Greta's uh, own resilience. When you have the uh, US president sarcastically tweeting about her, we're sort of getting to, to a bad place, really, aren't we? Oh, for sure. And I mean, I hope and assume that people around Greta uh, are filtering uh, some of the muck and rubbish um, that's put on social media about her. Um, uh, like, none of us, I think. Um, you know, we, we all go through phases in our lives where uh, we don't get a good press um, and, uh, and and that's ex- multiplied a thousand times sometimes on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, people feel free to say the most disgusting things um, about individuals, people they've never met, people they don't know on Twitter and Facebook. And for some peculiar reason, Greta has attracted a lot more than her fair share of that. Um, uh, it's as if people are afraid of her. Um, now, you asked the question, how is she protected uh, in, in the face of all the dogs abuse that she's got? Um, first of all, she strikes me anyway, I don't know her, but she strikes me anyway as a very strong and resilient person. Um, I think it, it's well worth encouraging your listeners to uh, log on to a couple of interviews she did, one on CBS News and one with, um, oh, what the hell is his name? Uh, Noah, Trevor Noah. Um, the day or the day after she arrived in New York. Um, and uh, I think you, it, it, gets you, it gives you a chance to form a much better impression of the person. Um, she is 16. She's incredibly bright. She has Asperger's syndrome, and Asperger's syndrome um, can uh, prevent challenges in the life of anybody. Um, but it's not a mental illness. She's not a sick kid. I think she's that's absolutely clear. Uh, and that she's was. Not a, she's not a fragile or vulnerable kid. She's a strong, resilient, incredibly bright person. Um, she's in the glare of global publicity at the moment. And there's nobody strong enough, nobody in the whole world strong enough. Um, uh, to withstand all that for the glare just on the, on, on the subject of yes her personal strength or otherwise I think when we, she has spoken before we have seen that that sort of sterling strength that is in there but I think this time she came across as more vulnerable and I think that's why she looked more strained she looked very small and frail you know for, for a 16 year old she's not big no she's and I think big, that and, and 
yeah, no, and she and she does look a little small and frail. She didn't come across to me as um, as vulnerable. She came across to me as angry, really angry, um, and and as you know prepared. She said to uh, Trevor Noah um, that one of the things her Aspergers does for her is it cuts, if you like, it cuts through the crap. She doesn't feel the need to be polite to adults when adults are talking nonsense. Or to um, smile at them and to be plausible and to be to say, yeah, to, yeah, amenable. She, she, just, yeah. she is direct and straight and so on. And she looked to me like somebody who had had it up to here with the humbug and the hypocrisy um, that, that were all going on with... Not uh, doubting that at all, but... Of, and obviously you're, you're right, she spoke in an impassioned way and that's why her facial expressions were, were that way. But there was, I, I believe, personally, there was a kind of a, a cruelty from the picture desks all over the papers, p- deliberately picking the most uh, stressed out-looking faces to put on the pictures. I, I just felt, you know, we, we, we hear about the, um, the, the the sort of the middle-aged men who have a, have a situation with her for what whatever reason. And are those middle-aged uh, men, are they the photographers? Are they the picture editors? I just <laughs> felt, I felt uncomfortable. Editor, yeah. yeah, I felt uncomfortable yeah, no, with I, the I, choice of photographs. I get that, I must say. But, 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 but if you look at the whole thing, if you look at the, the whole four or five minutes, or if you look at some of the other interviews that she did around the same time, uh, you, you form a different impression. And I think the fact that those scared frightened faces are the scowl that she put on when Trump passed her by in the corridor. Um, I, I think the fact that they're the ones that are being used tells you a lot of what you need to know about the people who are reacting to Greta Thunberg. Um, I mean, I, I've written, I wrote about this yesterday, some of the, some of the stuff that has been put online uh, about her and about the people around her by people who couldn't possibly know the first thing they're talking about um, is a cruel beyond um, uh, description. And, and it's dishonest and it's hateful uh, and so on. She's been compared to, you know, Nazi propaganda. She's been uh, described in the most awful way. And, they, and the people who are doing that are definitely picking the worst possible images that they can find. Now, you know, Ola, you and I have met a couple of times. I think it would not be difficult to get, shall we say, some very, very, very flattering images of me and put them online and present me as somebody who has, you know, bald and fat and ancient and wrinkled and so on, all of which we know I'm not. Or we could airbrush you and make you look fab. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's easy to do, but I think the fact that it's done, the fact that it has been done to her, um, uh, I, I think tells you more, less about her and more about the people who are keen to, to you know, do her in. And, and they're keen to do her in because they know she's bloody well right. Well, I'm um, glad with your um, experience that you, you feel she's strong and resilient and that I know uh, Ryan Tuberty came under a lot of flack uh, yesterday. Well, I and I think he was, well, he was just actually th- commenting as a father. I think he was just saying, yeah, you know, hopefully she's getting yeah. to see the odd movie as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I and I hope and I'm sure she does. Uh, she's very intense. I mean, like I I have some friends who are um, who have Asperger syndrome, and they are on the one hand some of the most brilliant, brilliant indeed uh, people I know, and on the other hand some of the most intense and driven people I know. And the, th- those qualities seem to go hand in hand with with the uh, with the condition. It's why sometimes. Um, 
uh, Greta herself refers to her autism um, as a superpower rather than as a disability. And there's a lot in that, you know. It's a great way of looking at it. And as you say, she doesn't arrange her face to suit us. She, no. she, she says what she has to say. And if there's no filter there, that's all the more powerful, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. All right. Well, it is. Fergus Finley. It is. And, I, and I think, I think, and, you know, I... I, I I, I talked, because I wrote um, about it yesterday and I got a lot of phone calls and reaction and you know, Twitter stuff and all that kind of thing. I spoke to a couple of people myself who who are mental health experts that I would trust. Um, and uh, just to sense check my own feeling. Absolutely. About Greta, because I think she is, I was going to say national treasure, she's a global treasure and she needs to be protected. They all university said she'd be grand. She's good, good. She and, ho- and, and hopefully she will continue people to... People around her who are supportive and not people around her who are cruel. Absolutely, and hopefully she'll continue to call it out for us. And that's uh, Fergus Finley, former CEO of Bernardo's and Irish Examiner columnist. And thank you for joining us today, finishing up the programme there with that reaction to child protection or to uh, climate activist Greta Thunberg. And that's all we've got for you on the programme today. My thanks to Marie Kearns, Maggie Maguire and Chris Murray as usual. And we'll be back with you hopefully tomorrow morning at 9.15. All going well. Until then, bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 